Welcome to This Is Your Life with Michael Hyatt, where our goal is to help you win at work and succeed at life. My name is Michelle Cushat. I'm your co-host. And today, joining me in the conversation is my good friend, Michael Hyatt. Hey there, Michael. Michelle, so good to see you and even better to hear you. (laughs) I agree. Oh, I would just like to say that both of us, for those who are listening, have experienced a few technical difficulties this week, today in particular. And so, yes, we just don't take it for granted when things work. And right now it happens to be working. So, yay. Yay. Well, uh, our topic today is one that I'm really excited about, frankly, because you have taught me more about this subject than most people have. Really? And Yes. And I will explain to you why in a little bit. Okay. But uh, before we dive into it, I just wanted to kind of acknowledge the fact that in our social media rich world right now, we talk more. And by talk, I say, quote, unquote, we talk more than we've ever talked before. We write uh, tweets, we post on Facebook, we provide pictures, we do Snapchat and Lab and Instagram, everything else. So in some ways, we are talking all the time. And yet I would say that in all the talk that we do, we're probably worse conversationalists than we've ever been before. Would you agree or disagree with that? No, I totally agree. I think it's really easy to be so focused on getting your message out that what should be a dialogue becomes a monologue mm-hmm. because we're doing all the talking and yeah, it's gotta, it's gotta be a dialogue and that takes some intention. You know, I don't think most people are, are born with stuff. I remember uh, years ago I had coffee with a guy. Um, this has happened actually more than once, but I remember this one distinctively. We went to the Starbucks and this was the first time we'd ever met. He'd asked for the meeting. He was a young, aspiring platform builder. And I think I got maybe one or two sentences in over the course of an hour. He talked literally nonstop. Didn't ask me one question. Didn't know anything about me more than what he knew before he got to the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew a lot more about him. I guess he thought it was important that I didn't know about him. <laughs> but there was a result of that, there was no real connection. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, you know, he missed an opportunity. And we probably both collectively missed an opportunity, but I didn't know what to do. I just thought it was so rude, but I thought that's how a lot of people approach conversations. Yeah, I agree. If you, and I'm putting you on the spot here because I didn't really tell you I was going to ask you this, but if you could describe our current culture of conversation or how we approach conversation in a couple of words, what, what would you say? How would you describe it? Distracted. I think most of us, when we're in a conversation, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. Instead of listening to the person who's asking us a question or sharing something important, you know, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. And you can really see this in the debates. Oh, Oh my gosh. You know, they're talking over the top of each other. They're talking to somebody other than the person they're supposed to be having a conversation with. They don't answer the questions. And this is true on both sides. I hate the the current state of public discourse. It's very mm-hmm. disturbing. I was going to say discouraging, but it's really more than that. It's disturbing. It is disturbing uh, because, you know, I, the kind of understanding of what conversation is about is it's, it's involving both parties. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem that anybody cares about the other party. And I don't mean necessarily political party, but as we're talking, all we care about is getting our point across. We've lost this art of learning to listen and understand. We become so defensive or unable 
to receive or process somebody else's comments or perspective or whatever. So distracted is a great word to describe it. Yeah, I was thinking like in the debates sometimes, what you have is uh, somebody making a point and instead of asking for clarification, which would be refreshing, you know, mm -hmm. if one of your opponents says something that you disagree with, how awesome would it be to model and to enlighten yourself and the country by just asking a question? Well, what do you mean by that? And then wait for a response. But they're so quick to get in. It's it's like a sword fight, really. You know, they're just yes. going at each other, you know, trying to land some blows that'll take their opponent out. And it's very distasteful. It's just, it's basically professional wrestling, but debate. Yeah, and I've thought too how, uh, as I'm raising kids in this next generation, how, you know, I don't want to accept this lack of ability to converse to define my children. I want to do something very intentional about teaching them something yeah. different. But if I went to teach them that, that means I have to become uh, basically a student of conversation as well, which is precisely what we're talking about today. So yep. today's topic is six strategies to becoming a better conversationalist and why it matters. And it matters, I think, far more than we realize. Uh, so if you struggle with conversation, if you want to learn how to improve, uh, I have you know, several friends who conversation doesn't come naturally for them. For me, it seems to be more automatic, but I know it's not for so many people. And so if that's you, you're certainly not alone. And that's what we're going to unpack today. Michael's going to provide these six different strategies that will help you become a better conversationalist at home, in your community, uh, in your place of employment with your employees or your employer, or just with friends, just around the dinner table with friends. So like riding a bike or driving a car, it's a skill that requires practice to improve. So we're going to give you those strategies today, and then you're going to have an opportunity to take those back to your real life and put them into practice. So Michael, go ahead and get us started. What is the very first strategy? Yeah, the first one, and I have to give credit where credit's due. I got this from Lucy Swindoll. And oh, by the way, love her. Uh, she's One amazing, isn't she? Yeah, some of you will know that she's the sister of Chuck Swindoll, uh -huh. who's kind of the world-renowned, famous pastor, speaker, mm -hmm. author, amazing uh, teacher and speaker. Mm -hmm. But she is Chuck's older sister and just a delight. One of my favorite people in the world. She but, might not be happy with you pointing out the fact that she's the older sister. <clears throat> no, I just I, want to speak. I'm going to speak up on Lucy's behalf. Yeah, no, I think she likes that because she likes... She likes to boss him around. So that, okay, that is true. <laughs> yeah. So um, we were at her house one night for dinner, and there were probably about twelve of us. And she has her dining room table in the middle of her library, which is really amazing because you're surrounded by all these books. Mm -hmm. And she stood up before we began. She prayed, of course, and then she said, "Look, I only have one rule at my house, and the rule is this. I call it the one conversation rule, and it basically means that we're going to have one conversation." She said, "We can talk about anything you want." Whatever you want. I have some questions prepared, but um, we don't have to do those. We can talk about whatever we want. But I'm just going to ask that there be no side conversations and that we have one conversation. I have never found anything to be more transformative to conversation and to deep, intimate connection with people than this rule. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is because, you know, when a lot of people are talking, it's so easy to be distracted. You're kind of trying to be present with the person that's talking to you, but you're hearing these side conversations off to the side mm -hmm. and it becomes very distracting and it's very hard to engage like you need to. 
But when you when you establish the one conversation rule, everybody gets a chance. You draw out the people that you know are not contributing or not um, speaking up, and you get a sense of what they have to say as well. So it's just it's an awesome rule to practice. And when I mentioned at the beginning of this, I've learned a lot about conversation from you. It all goes back to this rule because I have sat with you and your family or other mutual friends multiple times over dinner where we have observed that rule. And I mean, it's, it's a powerful thing. It is. We went on a cruise with our entire team this last fall. We took everybody out to celebrate uh, a goal that we'd hit as, as a company so I took everybody on a cruise and every night we did this one conversation rule and Megan, my oldest daughter who runs the company, she had prepared just a set of three questions and they were on a little tent card at each table. Mm -hmm. So each night they were different and it was really a lot of fun because we got to know each other at a deeper level than just superficially. Uh, there was some thought and intention and strategy put into the conversation. So it was way different than just kind of showing up and, you know, no pun intended, blabbing on. You know, about whatever <laughs> occurred to us. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I remember one night in particular, this was actually just this past September, and I hadn't seen you all in probably, you know, over a year, about a year. And we sat around the table with uh, Megan and uh, one of your other daughters as well, and your wife, and we just asked one question. It took all of dinner for each one of us to take turns to answer this one question, and I mean, I'll never forget it. It's probably my best memory of that particular trip wow. to Nashville. Uh, just because we all slowed down long enough to actually listen to each other's answer. You know, that's another thing that's, I think, super helpful. And thank you for that. I think that another thing that's super helpful is when you do this as a family, you're teaching your children how to be conversationalists. You know, mm -hmm. how to listen, how to give other people the floor, how to be really interested and curious because the fun is when you ask the follow-up question. So you ask that, that one question, and then somebody will share something, and then to ask that second question or that third question and drive the conversation even deeper. But I think that this is one of those skills that's easy, more easily caught than taught. And when you do it with your kids, it's phenomenal. I mean, we practice it literally at every family meal. We went out just impromptu last night with three of my kids for dinner, and it's just it's just how we do it now. We don't even have to say, oh yeah, one conversation rule, we just get right into it. That's, that's great. And I'm a big believer in it after learning it from you, which ultimately goes back to Lucy Swindoll. So thank you, Lucy. All right, so that first strategy in becoming a better conversationalist is to establish the one conversation rule. This is, this is a big one. I love that we started out with that first strategy. What is the second strategy? The second one is to listen with your heart. You know, conversation is so much more than words. And Sometimes it's the pauses. Sometimes it's the inflection of the voice. Sometimes it's the body language. Sometimes it's the volume of the voice. It can be a number of things, but to listen with your heart means that you're listening sort of at a multi-track level, not mm -hmm. just the words that are being said. And it's almost as if um, you're, you're just listening at a deeper level. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it's, it's a kind of listening with your whole being where you really want to hear from that person. And it does mean that you set aside your agenda. It does mean that you stop thinking about how you're going to reply next, but you're just listening to what that person is really saying because it, it may be just beyond the veil of the words where they're communicating. You know, when you hear somebody talking and their eyes well up with tears, you know, yes. you realize there's something else there. 
And I think sometimes we, we feel that the, the silence is awkward and we feel the need to cover it with noise. And I think listening with our heart means that we give the other people the space to go ahead and um, cry if they need to mm-hmm. or find the right words, uh, make them not feel rushed, but to really connect at a different level so that people feel like, you know, I'm really being listened to. And that's such a gift to give to anybody, to just listen to them. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why therapy is so popular, because in our culture, we have to pay to get somebody to listen to us. <laughs> you can say that again. And I think so so much. Because we've lost that art of listening with the heart. We really have. And probably a lot of therapy. And I, I mean, I believe in therapy and I believe in counseling. Mm-hmm. And I think the healthy people get both. But uh, I think probably a lot of it wouldn't be as necessary if we just had people that would honestly listen to us and help us process uh, what we're going through. Yeah, I want to differentiate kind of, you know, listening with the intellect versus listening with the heart, because what you're talking about takes uh, takes a practice to a whole different level of intentionality, as you've mentioned before. But uh, when we listen with just our, like when we listen to just words, that's when we get into the habit of feeling the need to chime in and and hurry up and respond really quick, or maybe even to try to fix the emotion that we're hearing. Yep. Whereas listening with the heart just receives it and yes. holds it like, um, how do I say? I mean, you kind of hold it like a treasure. Like somebody just shared something with you that's valuable and you hold it and you process it and you uh, consider it. And that listening with your heart, I think, mm. slows the conversation down. Yeah, you know, there's a sense in which um, I like the distinction you made between the intellect and the emotion. And, and sometimes I think it's just being empathetic, you know, sharing mm. that emotion with the other person. And the older I get, the easier I tear up anyway. And I think having raised five daughters, I've learned to cry with them. I would say it's hopeless for you, man. I'm sorry, but. <laughs> but I do, I do think that when you can, and, and this could sound manipulative, and I don't mean it that way, but when you can mirror the emotion, you know, that like, like if somebody's angry, you know, there's some injustice that's been perpetrated and, and they're angry to, you know, just to kind of share that a little mm-hmm. bit, or if it's sadness or hurt or whatever it is. But I think people need to feel like they're understood that they're, and especially that they're not alone. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. In fact, we jump too quickly to try to fix things for them, but nobody can receive your attempts to coach or counsel or fix them if they don't feel you understand them first. That's where it has to begin. Hey, I have a question on that point for you. Uh, okay. When you were going through the deepest, darkest part of your journey through cancer mm-hmm. and and your friends were talking to you, on this particular point, what was helpful and what was not helpful? Because I'm, I'm guessing that when people would say to you, I understand what you're going through, that's probably not the right response. Because there's no way they can understand. No, they don't understand. Uh, so what I have found, this is, and, uh, and I found this again and again, even in myself and how I respond to people that are in a place of uh, like difficulty, severe or significant difficulty or suffering or pain or whatever, is that we have this almost, uh, almost desperate need to alleviate pain. Because on one hand, we want to alleviate because we care about the other person. But the truth is, is somebody else's pain actually causes us pain because it opens us to the possibility that bad things can happen to us as well. Mm-hmm. And so we have such a need to either deny pain or fix it. So we either shut down and walk away or we try really hard to rationalize it or explain it or, or something. And so the things that weren't helpful are those people who 
uh, were almost compulsive in their need to either deny my pain or circumstances or to, um, you know, kind of candy coat it or pretend it wasn't real or the ones who tried to fix it. So the people who want to give me uh, a list of the diets that I need to eat or the scriptures I need to read or whatever. So those things weren't helpful. Those things that were helpful are those people who could listen with their heart and actually enter into my pain. But that requires that requires some sacrifice on the listener's part to be willing to just kind of sit in the mess with the other person for a time without feeling the need to fix it. And I think that's the difference between talking at one another versus having mm-hmm. a conversation together. Conversation implies like a, like a partnership or a joint effort, whereas just talking at people isn't joint at all. That's good. Um, I was talking to my daughter, Mary, recently, who was going through a, a difficult situation. And I, I just listened to her. And, I, and I, one of the things I said to her is I said, I, there's no way I can understand what you're mm-hmm. going through but I'm with you in this. And she referred to it later, and I'd never heard this term before, but I actually looked it up and studied it a little bit. She said, Dad, you, you've really become good at holding space. You ever heard mm-hmm. that term? Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, so you're not, you're not fleeing, but you're not kind of artificially trying to connect, but you're just there with the person, holding their hand, praying, listening, whatever it requires, but not pretending that somehow, you know, you get their pain because there's no way that any of us could get that. Even if our circumstances are similar, we really don't understand another person's experience because it's physically impossible for us to become them. So, uh, yeah, so saying that we understand is uh, well-intentioned but ends up being very trite. And so it would be better to say, I can't even fathom your pain, but I promise you I'm going to hang out with you in it until... Uh, you know, you can move forward. I like that. That's good. All right. So the first strategy we've talked about as far as becoming a better conversationalist is first to establish a one conversation rule, two, to listen with your heart, which is so much different than just listening with your intellect. It requires a little bit more of a sacrifice on your part to step into the other person's story. And number three is? To be aware aware of how much you're talking. Um (laughs) I, By the way, just side note, this is where I fail almost every time. Well, me too. You know, um, I learned this back when I was doing radio interviews for um, a book that I published that really caught on in the late 90s. And I was doing hundreds of radio interviews. I think I did over a thousand, maybe over 1,200 the first year. And I realized that um, the very first radio interview I w- ever went on, they put me on hold and they were interviewing another guest. And this guy would not come up for air. And he just talked, 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 never gave the host an opportunity to talk. And so after a while, they flushed him. And the producer came on the phone and said, we're not going to have any more guests. Sorry. And then they flushed me. So I didn't even get to, I didn't even get to do that interview. I guess I was just guilty by association. Oh, no. But um, I think you got to be aware of how much you're talking. And there's got to be some give and take you know, back and forth. So it just can't be one person doing all the talking. And just to be aware, you've got to, you've got to have self-awareness if you're going to be successful as a conversationalist. And, you know, some people just kind of uh, careen from one speech to the next. And that's what, as we began this show, I was talking about this, 
young guy that took me out for coffee at Starbucks. And that's exactly what it was. You know, it was mm-hmm. just one speech after the next. And I think sometimes that comes from the need to prove ourselves or uh, insecurity in some way. I don't really think it comes from pride. Maybe it does sometimes. But somehow we've got to make a positive impression on that person. And we think mm-hmm. the more we talk, the more we share with them our victories or our accomplishments or whatever, the, be, the more they'll be impressed. That's usually not what impresses us. And, and I think that one of the things we've got to remember, I may have learned this from Dale Carnegie originally, but everyone's favorite topic is themselves. <laughs> that's just painful. I, I've heard that <laughs> no, before. I hate that's that. just painful. It's but true, I, but it's painful. But I try to remember that. You know, people that talk about you or want to hear from you in a conversation, you walk away from the conversation going, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, we had an amazing conversation. Why? Because there was give and take. There was... Mm-hmm. There was this awareness that the other person had so that they weren't dominating the conversation. I think it's true one-on-one, and I especially think it's true in small groups. It's especially true um, if you're leading a small group or even with your family. I think if you're leading, you need to be aware not only of how much you're talking, but how much other people are talking. And sometimes the people that are uh, reluctant to talk are the people that have the deepest reserve of thinking and feeling and contribution. So you've got to be able to draw them out. And sometimes if people don't jump in, I'll literally just ask them a question. You know, I'll go right to them and pull them into the conversation. Absolutely. My husband's one of those people and, and I can easily freight train right over him because I can talk without ceasing. And so (laughs) learning to slow down and actually ask questions. I mean, he's just a, he's a very deep pool of insights. And when I talk too much, I miss out on that gift. That's good. All right. So, so far we've talked about three of the six strategies to becoming a better conversationalist. One is to establish a one conversation rule. Two is to listen with your heart. Three, to be aware of how much you're talking. We have three more strategies coming up in just a moment. All of these are so helpful. Things that you can put into practice immediately in the workplace, in your family, with your friendships and relationships. So make sure you stick around. We have three more. But before we dig into those other three, Michael, You've had a lot going on personally with um, a little something called a book called Living Forward. Yes. Yes. And I'm very excited about it. At the time we're recording this, the book just hit four bestseller lists. It hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It hit the USA Today bestseller list, which I'm particularly proud of because that's all books in every genre. And -hmm. it was number six, six this past week. Then it hit the publisher's weekly bestseller list, and then also the BookScan bestseller list. That's amazing. I mean, just let's take a moment, Mr. Achiever, and just celebrate that. That's that's excellent. That doesn't happen without a ton of hard work and, of course, so many people that are rallying around you and supporting this book. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it's been everything from the launch team that's been involved with us to my own team in planning the strategy and executing it. And even today, as I'm looking at it here, it's still number 86 on Amazon overall. That's amazing. So we're getting, the fun thing is we're getting some great um, comments, some great reviews right now. And I know you got terrific reviews on your book too. But right now we've got 205 customer reviews, average 4.9. I know. I looked at that this morning on Amazon for your sake, because I knew you probably weren't checking. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) So she I checked just. that out. And yeah, I just. And I did notice how many reviews have come in and how well they're doing. 
Uh, and one thing you want to make people aware of about this book, first of all, is the book, okay? So it doesn't require a huge investment, but the payout from reading this book and putting into practice the principles taught in that book are significant for your life because it's all about life plan. And one thing that you've made available to everyone is a free assessment tool. Would you like to tell them a little bit about that? Yes, at livingforwardbook.com. I'm not sure we even mentioned the title of the book, but it's called Living Forward, A Proven Plan to Stop Drifting and Get the Life You Want. And at livingforwardbook.com, we have a terrific assessment. Let me just uh, flip to that while we're doing this. And the assessment's called the Life Planning Assessment. And it's pretty quick. It takes you about 10 minutes to do. Uh, it says, li sorry, life assessment profile is what it's called, and it's free, but it basically helps you to evaluate how you're doing in all your major life accounts, and it measures your passion and your progress. And in our experience, it takes those two things for you to feel mm -hmm. satisfied in life. So for example, in your marriage, if you're not experiencing passion and progress, you're probably not going to be very satisfied. And so we have a whole model, psychological model that we've used, and we employed some experts uh, to get us to that point. But again, it's free, and it will really help you get a grip on where you're at in your life and what you can do to improve so that you do take, um, sort of start planning your life, stop drifting, start getting the satisfaction that you want uh, in the various components of your life. So once again, that's the uh, Living Forward Assessment Tool. It's absolutely free. You can get more information about that at livingforwardbook.com, livingforwardbook.com. And just one more reminder, regardless of your age, it is not too late. If you woke up this morning and you're still breathing, you can make the most of this gift of life that you've been given. So check out livingforwardbook.com for that free assessment tool, as well as links to get you a copy of the book for yourself. Terrific. So once again today, we're talking about how to become a better conversationalist. We opened this whole episode by mentioning how truly over the last, I would even say the last decade, we have become somewhat atrophied in our ability to carry on a conversation. And so today we want to counteract that atrophy with six strategies to becoming a better conversationalist. So far, we've talked about the first three, establish the one conversation rule, two, listen with your heart, Three, be aware of how much you're talking. What is the fourth strategy, Michael? The fourth one is to hit the ball back over the net. You know, nothing communicates value and respect to a person more than asking them what they think. And I, I remember I, I had this opportunity one time, Michelle, back when I was, I think, 28 years old, to meet Dr. Billy Graham. And no certainly... Way. Yeah, he was, we were publishing, and my publishing company that I worked for uh -huh. was his publisher. So I got to go to Anchorage, Alaska, to one of his conferences, and I got to meet him backstage. And two things were really remarkable about that encounter. First of all, I was terrified. That wasn't the remarkable thing. That's, I, I suppose, <laughs> to be expected. But I was really scared because I was meeting this man that was a legend, this man that was uh -huh. extremely well-known, this man who had been a counselor to many U.S. presidents and other world leaders. But when I walked in the green room, he stood up, and I was the only other person in the room. He stood up, walked over to me, and he said, hi, my name's Billy. What's your name? So I thought that was amazing. Like, I didn't know. You know, of course I knew. <laughs> so, but I just thought that showed Did that, you know your own name at that point? That's yeah. what I want to know. Did well, you remember? <laughs> it, was, it was just really, um, I, I think, showed tremendous humility on his part. Yes. But the second thing that he did 
was that he just started asking me all these questions. And I thought he was such a master question asker, and he was really interested. I mean, he's asking about my family and my work and all these different questions that really communicated to me that he respected me. And so I think whenever we uh, get together and we have a conversation with somebody else, we need to think of it like a ping pong match or a tennis match. You know, you hit the ball over and over the net and then you return it. And we've used this metaphor with our kids uh, again and again. But there's been a few tips that I found that are really helpful in terms of the kinds of questions, the kind of thoughtful questions that we can ask. And... Can I share those? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So first of all, the, the easiest way, the best kind of question is an open-ended question. So where it's not, there's not a yes, no answer, which is a closed-end question, and mm-hmm. basically doesn't generate any discussion. It, it can't go anywhere. Somebody answers the question, and that's it. You've either got to ask another question, or you've got to pick up the ball and start talking. But when you ask an open-ended question, you get far more interesting insights. So, for example, instead of asking, are you happy with your results, which is yes or no, you could say, um, why do you think you got the results you did? Mm-hmm. So the first question can be answered yes or no. The second question uh, is open-ended, and it invites reflection. It starts a discussion, and it might really lead to some interesting insights for both of you. So that's the first thing. Ask open-ended questions. The second one is to get behind the assumptions. And, you know, every, every business decision is based on assumptions. And if you understand the assumptions as a business person, you can easily uh, avoid making a bad decision. Mm-hmm. So it's often helpful to ask yourself uh, first and then your teammates, what are you assuming in this scenario? Because the assumptions will tell you a lot. And so you got to keep peeling the layers of the onion back, so to speak, until you get comfortable with the assumptions. And this is where a lot of people make mistakes. It's not that their thinking is bad. It's that the assumptions have led them down um, uh, a wrong path. Mm-hmm. And then third, and man, I, I have been guilty of this so many times. Um, you need to get both sides of the story. It's so easy when you hear one side of the story to act on that information and then be embarrassed when you find out that you'd only heard half the facts. Mm-hmm. And I've done that a bunch of times. And you, you've, you've got to get both sides of the story so that if somebody comes into you with, a, with a, something that seems open and shut and it seems like you know they've made their case and they're right, I do try to listen, try to ask them mm-hmm. a bunch of questions but then I want to get the other side of the story. I want to withhold judgment before I, you know, say something. Mm -hmm. And then fourth is to get comfortable with what I would call dead air. You know, it's a radio term, but uh, it's not good in radio, by the way, but it is good in conversation. Yes, it is. Most people get uncomfortable when things get quiet and they feel the obligation to fill the space with chatter. And you can learn a lot if you'll just shut up and let people talk. <laughs> Imagine that. I know. <laughs> that was a very profound quote right there. Well. Because it's true. I mean, just stop talking. Yeah. My, my former boss, Sam Moore at Thomas Nelson, was really good about this. It would sometimes get really awkward because he would just be quiet. He'd ask a question, then he'd just be quiet. And somebody would respond. They'd, they'd give him kind of the road answer that they'd prepared. And then he would just kind of nod, but then he wouldn't say anything. <laughs> and they would volunteer all kinds of information, amazing amounts of information 
that you would have never um, heard or never obtained in any other way. So to just be quiet and listen. And, and when it's with your friends or with your family, sometimes it's, it's in that pause that you'll go to the next level, kind of on the elevator to get to a uh, deeper level of conversation where people reveal more of what's behind their thinking and what's more behind the first level of answer. I think there's. I think we forget that not everybody pro- processes information at the same speed we right. do, and uh, and I've I've had to learn this the hard way with uh, some people close to me that they need time to think and process and uh, and when I'm always constantly chattering, I don't allow them or even myself to process the information that's been shared. And so, having an awareness and respect for that, you end up learning so much about another person if you would just be quiet. So true. I mean, I can tell you from the talking side, you know, my first answer is usually not my best answer. Oh, goodness. Yes. You know, I, I have. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> not with you personally, but with myself. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't come out right, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So like, like a lot of times I'm thinking with my mouth open, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. kind of thinking about whatever topic it is and I have to kind of work around it to kind of get it out. There's, there's another uh, principle too in asking questions, and that's help people discover their own insights. Man, I still have to work at this because when I'm talking to somebody, like if I'm coaching somebody, I'm pretty intuitive, and the answer to me is usually readily apparent. Do you ever have this? Mm-hmm. But if you just kind of blurt it out and give the person the answer, it's usually not as insightful or helpful to them as if you'll ask the questions and lead them to that conclusion and kind of hold your own conclusion loosely, like you kind of have it, but maybe you don't have it. But sometimes they'll, uh, if you ask an open-ended question, they'll get to an insight that's far deeper than you could ever get to, and it'll have a more profound impact on them because they arrived at the, at the answer themselves. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm that person who is resistant to somebody telling me what to do or what to think. And so if somebody comes out and just bluntly says it, uh, I'm, I'm much less likely to learn from it than if they would just allow me some space to come to that conclusion through our conversation. So true. So true. All right. So that, were those all of the types of questions that you were going well, to share? There's another one that's useful in a business conversation, and that is understand the difference between uh, facts and speculation. Okay. Um, one of my former bosses told me, make sure you tell me what you know and what you think you know and make mm-hmm. sure I know the difference. Okay. And when people make statements about things, um, sometimes we think they're based on the facts, but some of it may be speculation. So one of the questions mm-hmm. I like to ask is, do you know that to be a fact? You know, because people, especially in our world of sound bites, will quote all kinds of things or quote some source they heard about. But I think sometimes we just have to ask the question, do you know that to be a fact? Or how do you know? Now, I used to get, I won't tell you which of my relatives used to send me these things, but I used to get these crazy emails that were forwarded to me from a relative. And they would make some outrageous claim about some celebrity or some political figure. And I would go to this website. I think it's called Snopes. Have you ever done this? Yeah, Snopes.com. Yeah. Yeah. And, Absolutely. you know, it verifies rumors. And, and so- like- 99% of the time, it's all rumor. It's I know. Not true. <laughs> and, and so I would end up, you know, taking the link from that page that dispelled the rumor and sending it to this family member. And finally, I got him to see, you know, why don't you check this first, you know, f- before you pass on this rumor? So I think to ask that question, is this a fact? 
Is this source credible? You know, and, and not because you're trying to interrogate them, but you don't want to make a decision based on bad information. So sometimes you got to drill sure. down and make sure that this is credible, that it is based on fact. So right now we're talking about the fourth strategy, which is hit the ball back over the net. So in the source of, or in the process of conversation, to make sure that if you're speaking, to also hit the ball back over the net with another question to ask the other person. And Michael's just given us about six or seven different types of questions you can ask in your effort to hit the ball back over the net. So we've covered four of the strategies. What is number five? Number five is ask follow-up questions. You know, the best listeners I know never stop with one question. You know, that's mm -hmm. kind of the easy thing. And certainly your first goal as an improving conversationalist is to ask that first question, but don't stop there. Hit the ball back over the net, but don't stop with that. Again, mm -hmm. kind of like peeling an onion, you want to ask follow-up questions going deeper each time. And sometimes just for the fun of it, um, I like to see how many questions I can ask in a row without commenting. And my daughter, Megan, is the best I've ever seen at this. She's just really great at stacking questions. Mm -hmm. And it, make, it, it has a way of making you feel honored, like she's genuinely interested to know what you think or how you feel or what your perspective is. So to ask that second question, say, well, like, why was that important? Or... Uh, so why did you do that? Or what was behind that? Or just something that goes a little bit deeper. And I, I almost said, like an investigative reporter, people don't want to be interrogated. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is cultivating a genuine sense of curiosity That's so that you exactly. get the story behind the story. Exactly. And I, you said it so well. Follow-up questions communicate interest. Uh, we can sometimes get in this habit of, you know, we know that asking questions is important in conversation and almost do it robotic or yes. by rote. And the follow-up questions actually communicates that we're engaging with what they're saying, which is uh, so critical to actually becoming a conversationalist. Yep, so true. So important. All right, so hit the ball back over the net, ask follow-up questions, and what is the final strategy? The final one is that when you're listening, provide positive feedback. Now, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen people that don't do this at all. Like when I've been interviewed for television, sometimes there's something called an off-camera interview where somebody's asking you questions off-camera and they're not giving you any feedback. They're like looking at the next question and you're just kind of talking in the room. Have you ever had this experience? Yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. Because <laughs> I, need, you, I need feedback. <laughs> I do too. And one of the best interviewers in that kind of situation that I've ever met in my life is our mutual friend, Stu McLaren. Because oh, yeah. Stu is, he's nodding, he's smiling, he's totally engaged, and that encourages you. It, it makes you want to share more. It makes you reach deeper for the content. And um, I actually had the bad habit of providing no input put because I thought, well, you know, this is what senior level executives do. You just kind of sit there with a poker face, you don't show your hand, and you just let people talk. And then I kind of noticed that people locked up. And I, I had a consultant one time that said to me, she said, are, are you mad? She pulled me aside during a break. We were having this financial review meeting and I was listening to our different financial or our different managers of our divisions go through their results for the previous month. And I just had this scowl on my face and I kind of listened and nodded a little bit, but pretty poker faced. And she said, are you, are you angry? And I said, no, I'm fine. <laughs> and she said, well, you might want to tell your face. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you, you know, probably no surprise. I would oh, imagine because you never 
it never occurred to you or connected with you that your face was not offering feedback. I, it never occurred to me. at least not me. the right feedback, I should say. And it, and it took some rewiring to get my face connected to my heart. Yes. And I even had this problem, and you may have remembered this, but I even had this problem in public speaking. And I remember Brian Shearer, who was my booking manager, used to say to me, uh-huh. you got to smile more. you got to smile more. And I said, I am smiling. He said, no, you're not. I am smiling. <laughs> he said, okay, well, watch this video and tell me if you're smiling. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not smiling. <laughs> yes. And so literally for two years, I worked on smiling. And Dean Rainey, my video producer, and Stu McLaren and Megan all worked with me on video on just smiling. It's more engaging. People feel like they're talking to a real live person. And so I think as a conversationalist, you got to do that too. You got to smile. You got to encourage. You got to um, draw draw them out. And it's not just your words, but it's your body language. Yeah, I think it's important for us to remember a lack of feedback is still feedback. It's just not what yes. you want to communicate. Yes. So well put. Even- even not saying anything is feedback, and but it's creating a, a negative environment that you don't want to create. The other thing that I thought about too, uh, sometimes people ask me if I have any feedback for radio interviews, like any tips. And my number one tip for a radio interview, now imagine radio, you can't see facial expressions. I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Is yeah. <laughs> to smile. Yes. People can hear a smile over the airwaves. And so even if they can't see your face and they can't see the twinkle in your eye or the smile on your face, they can hear it. Yes. So even if you're on the phone, smiling is feedback that people can hear. My dad used to tell me this when I was a telephone sales rep. He'd say, make sure you're standing and you're smiling. So I would always sell on the telephone standing and smiling. For some reason, that didn't translate into the world of public speaking, (laughs) but I, I don't know. I just didn't connect it. But now... That's I, good advice, though. I mean, that's great is, advice. There, there's something about standing, and there is something about smiling that people can hear. Yep. It breaks down walls. And, and yes, as a public speaker, I've had the same thing where my intensity about my topic has uh, stolen the joy from my face. <laughs> and so I've had to learn the same lesson. And can I just say, after watching you for the last number of years, you have come a long way with your ability to smile. (laughs) Thank you. And speaking. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. Your team is earning their pay. Good, good, good. All right. So today our topic is six strategies to becoming a better conversationalist. Uh, I can't even tell you how much Michael and I fully believe in the importance of this topic. Michael has delivered uh, six strategies. They are, to recap, one, establish the one conversation rule. To have only one conversation at the dinner table or in a group at a time so that way everybody's engaged in a single topic and listening. Number two, listen with your heart. The third strategy, be aware of how much you're talking which we could all uh, benefit from that. Number four, hit the ball back over the net in the conversation. Number five, ask follow-up questions, which kind of is the proof that you're engaged with your heart and your mind. And then six, provide positive feedback. It lets the other person know that, yes, you're engaged, but also communicates a sense of safety that they can continue to talk and dialogue with you. So those are our six strategies today. As we conclude this episode, uh, let's take this conversation to the home, which we've talked about a little bit, but uh, uh, I'd love to just ask you personally, in addition to that one conversational rule, uh, how you have used these six strategies very specifically with your wife and then with your children, grandchildren, when they come home to visit, how do you keep from becoming lazy in conversation with them? 
Well, it is it is easy to become lazy. Um, and I think particularly when you're a father or a mother and you just kind of bark orders and, uh, you know, it's efficient, right? You know, so mm-hmm. if you just tell people what to do and uh, tell them what to think and how to feel, you know, it's very efficient, uh, uh-huh. except that they don't get it, you know. <laughs> yes. And so I think I think the thing for me is just valuing relationships and particularly in my home. You know, if I can't value and respect people in my home, the people that are closest to me, how in the world can I do it with my teammates and with my customers and with my clients? So it's like we say in the book, Living Forward, self-leadership precedes team leadership. And I think becoming a good conversationalist at home with the people that you love the most um, will really help you in every other aspect of your life, whether it's uh, business or your social life or whatever. So I think that in, in one sense, God has kind of given us all a lab. You know, if we have a family, it gives us an opportunity to practice this stuff and we can practice it every day and we really can get better. And if we want more meaningful, more significant relationships, we must become better conversationalists. That's the access point for these relationships that we so deeply desire. So well said, Michael, that, that conversation is the access point for deeper and more meaningful relationships. Well, if you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript at michaelhyatt.com. In addition, if you prefer to watch, we also have a video recorded of this entire episode where you can uh, see us in all of our (laughs) full glory or not. Uh, But can you do us a favor before you go and please take a few minutes, actually it would take only seconds, for you to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. very important in the world of iTunes that you take the time to rate the program. Let us know the episodes you particularly enjoy and offer a review, perhaps. This is a a great way for us to get the content into the hands of more people. Do you have any final thoughts today, Michael? Just to say that it's worth it. You know, it's worth learning to be a good conversationalist. It's not that hard, but it does take practice. It does take practice, without a doubt. Well, thank you for joining us today. Until next time, remember, your life, your one and only life is a gift. Now go make it count.